We're beginning this morning a new series, Life Unlocked. You can follow along in the bulletin. There's a sermon outline in there. Also on version, uh, you can follow along. If you look under events, probably the first one there will be Preston Crest. So just click on that and you can follow along. We've got some images in there and all the verses that we'll be reading together will be in there as well. First century Galilee was a place that didn't provide much of a future for a paralytic. There weren't handicapped accessible buildings there. There weren't miracle breakthrough medical procedures on the horizon. There weren't physical therapists or neurosurgeons or specialists there to help. There weren't wheelchairs in first century Galilee. It wasn't much of a place for a paralytic to live. The future for this man was locked, I think you could say. Locked in a cycle of despair for how long? No one could tell until death took him. Pity was pretty much the only thing the people around Capernaum could offer him. And he was sick and tired of being the object of his neighbor's pity. He wanted a life. He wanted to be able to to just take a walk around the block. He wanted to be able to wake up and go out to the fishing boats and work on the lake like all of his friends in Capernaum did. He wanted to, to fall in love and, and maybe have a child one day, bounce his, his baby on his knee. Those are the kinds of things he wanted, simple things, but impossible things for a paralytic in first century Galilee. Because what he wants and what he can expect, what he can realistically expect are two very, very different things. His life, his horizontal life, his stare at the ceiling all day life, his bed sore life, that's, well, if that's all he can hope for, he's not really sure he wants to remain alive. Atrophy. Frail arms and legs. A useless body. Atrophy has created a chasm a thousand miles wide between him and the life that he can only fantasize about. So there he spends his day lying on this sleeping mat in the middle of this room, staring at the ceiling, watching the days and the years go by, hearing the sounds of life going on out there, but not in his room. He can't move without assistance. There are no walks around the block. There is no change of scenery. He, he can't move across the room without inconveniencing someone or someone's total dependence. That's his life. Every meal provided for him by someone else, every sip of water, every bite of food provided by someone else, he can't bathe himself. 
He can't clean himself up after his accidents. He can't turn over. Constant dependence on the goodwill of others. The colors of the palette of his life are pain, boredom, frustration, futility, humiliation, and with those colors you can't really produce something beautiful, can you? That's his life on this sleeping mat. If there is one glimmer of joy in his life, it is his four friends. They've always had his back from early on while everyone else ignored him. They paid him attention. They talked to him. They hung out with him. And these guys have come to his house on this day buzzing with excitement. Jesus is in town. The rabbi everyone has been talking about is in Capernaum. And there have been rumors that have gotten everybody's attention. A leper healed. The demoniac that roamed the Decapolis, legendary figure, now freed from his demons. Healings, miracles, could they be true? What wasn't a rumor was that he was in town. You could feel it, the excitement in town. You could see it on the streets, this normally deserted fishing village jammed with people, a hodgepodge of all sorts of people, some hoping just to get a glimpse of this rabbi, of this miracle worker, some hoping to catch him in a carefully set religious trap. They didn't much like Jesus. They certainly didn't appreciate all of his popularity. Others coming to Jesus hoping to catch some of that divine power that was healing people. In the crowd, there was excitement. On some faces, hope on others, spite and judgment on others. Now, it was not hard to spot where Jesus was in town. The house in which he was ministering and teaching because that was the epicenter of the buzz around town. That's where the crowds were gathering and that place was packed. Late arrivals were unable to get in, were wedged in the narrow door hoping to get a glimpse. Others behind standing on tippy toes. Maybe they could see Jesus or catch a word or maybe he'd look at them at some point. For the four faithful friends of the paralytic, the agenda of the day was a given. They were going to get their friend to Jesus. They had to get their friend to Jesus. Nothing was going to stop them from getting their paralytic friend in the presence of Jesus. And so they carried him. Across town, they carried him to this home. And all of their pardon me's and all of their pushes 
Well, they weren't enough to cut through the sea of humanity surrounding that house. These guys, however, you know the story, they wouldn't be denied. The back of the house, they found a ladder leading up to the roof of that house. They huddled up and they decided that was the only route available to them. Two of them climbed up on the roof. Two below. They carefully, slowly, deliberately hoisted their paralytic friend up onto the roof on that house. And then the two below climbed up. They were now all on the roof of this house in Capernaum. Now what? (laughs) Breathing heavily. What do we do next? Well, sweating and out of breath, they did what needed to be done. Laying their friend and his mat down on that roof, they began burrowing. They began digging through that adobe and thatch roof directly above where they could hear the rabbi teaching somewhere below. In that room where Jesus was teaching, everyone has stopped talking, wondering what is that commotion up above, wondering why there is now dust and debris floating down from the ceiling. Not sure how... (laughs) Not sure how happy the owner of the house was. Not sure my insurance company is going to cover this roof repair. Below, eyes look toward the ceiling, wondering what's going on up there in the roof, wondering if it's even safe to be in that room anymore. Through the dusty air, they squinted as... Daylight began to shine through. First, a pinprick. And then a a quickly widening hole is opening up. And this shaft of light is coming through. And they can see the eyes of the four friends above, scanning the room, looking for the rabbi. And so the four guys up on the roof begin to lower their paralytic friend down into this crowded room in front of Jesus. And the process, the lowering of this paralyzed man, it was was deliberate, it was slow, it was careful, until he and his mat were on the ground right in front of Jesus. And so there he was, the paralytic man. Everyone in town knew him, lying under a coat of dust, illuminated by this spotlight that's coming in from the hole in the ceiling. And I've always imagined at this point, I've always imagined Jesus just kind of shaking his head and smiling. Luke says, Jesus saw their faith, the faith of these four friends, noticed and appreciated by the Son of God. Nothing in the gospel accounts leads us to believe that the paralytic man, nor any of his four friends, 
ever had a word to say to Jesus, what got the attention of Christ was what he saw. He saw faith. He saw four men, grown men, willing to carry their friend across town, unwilling to let any barrier, even the crowd around that home, stop them from getting to him. He saw faith. He saw four men willing to put their backs into their faith, willing to work up a sweat, expecting the miraculous. Now these men, looking down from above, they can't wait to see what Jesus will do. They seem to be confident that Jesus is about to unlock a brand new future for their friend. That their friend's life will never be the same. Now there are a lot of, as, as with any story like this, where people are interacting together, there are, are a lot of different levels going on in this story. On one level, a surface level, this is just kind of rude, okay? I mean, these guys have essentially cut in line to see Jesus. They didn't wait their turn. They threw courtesy and etiquette to the side. They have interrupted Jesus. They have interrupted the presentation, all those people who came to hear Jesus, not see them. That's one level. On another level, it's essentially criminal. I mean, destruction of property. Who do these guys think they are up there digging through this fellow's roof? But that stuff doesn't really matter, does it? Because we know something much larger is at play here. Jesus turns his gaze from the four friends to the paralytic man who lies in a heap at his feet. And the Lord sees, he always does, he sees more than we do. Jesus sees, sees through things. He appreciates the situation as it really is. And so Jesus doesn't just see a, an atrophied body lying at his feet. He sees an atrophied soul. He sees a crippled spirit, crippled by sin and shame. The man sees Jesus through the glare from above, and he sees in the face of Jesus a love like he has never seen in the eyes of anyone before. And the first word Rabbi Jesus speaks to that man, friend. Luke chapter 5, verse 20, friend, your sins are forgiven. Flood of forgiveness unleashed like a tidal wave. How many years has this man lived in crippling bitterness and resentment with that question echoing through his mind, why me? Your sins are forgiven. He can't hold back the tears. Eyes squeezed shut. 
he feels this palpable sense of relief. Those weren't just words. Something happened when that fellow spoke those words. But in this scene of faith and restoration of hope, there is another subplot, and it is an ugly subplot at work. It is the subplot of judgment. It is the religious leaders who, of course, are seated in the front row. They've come from all over, Luke tells us, even as far away as Jerusalem, to keep an eye on this young rebel rabbi. And they've got a problem with this, don't they? They have a big problem with what is going on in that room. Your sins are forgiven? Who's he to say that? Who does this fellow think he is? That is blasphemy. That is a capital offense. They are outraged by what they're witnessing. And Jesus knows exactly what they are thinking, exactly what they are muttering to each other. And isn't it interesting that the fact that he can read their thoughts, even hints at the identity that they are so keen to ignore. He is the Son of God. Yeah, they're right. God is the only one who can forgive sins. They're right about that. What they can't bring themselves to see is that they are face to face with the incarnation of God, the Son of God. God in the flesh spoke those words. Friend, your sins are forgiven. And so now Jesus responds to what they are thinking. Which would be easier for me to say, Jesus asks. Would it be easier for me to say, A, your sins are forgiven, or would it be easier for me to say, rise up and walk, take your mat, go home? Which would be easier for me to say? And Jesus says, now so that you can appreciate, so that you can recognize who I am, you can recognize that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say, get up, take your mat, walk home. And that is an interesting question that Jesus poses to the religious elite, isn't it? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. You can walk. Imagine Jesus is asking you that question. Which, he asks, is easier for me? To forgive a soul? To heal a body? Which was easier, physical healing or spiritual healing? One required a command from Jesus. The other required a crucifixion. To heal a man's body, a word from Jesus. To heal a man's soul, the sacrifice of his life. Which is easier for me to say, Jesus asked. 
well, for, for me and you and anyone else, I suppose both would be equally easy to say and both equally impossible to pull off, right? But Jesus isn't you. Jesus isn't me. He is the incarnation of God. So Jesus turned to the paralytic man lying there, and he makes this hypothetical real. He says, you, get up, take your mat, go home. Now this was, I don't know what word you put there, amazing. <laughs> what happens? He's healed. Atrophied muscles begin to fire for the first time. Central nervous system rebooted on the spot. The paralytic stood before them on his own two feet. He put the mat over his shoulder. The crowd in that room parted like the Red Sea. He walked out of there carrying his mat, praising God all the way home. Luke says, verse 26, Luke says, Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Now that was a moment no one in that house would ever forget. The story by the end of the day would have been told and retold hundreds of times all around Capernaum, all around Galilee. And I imagine outside the house as this paralytic walks out through the front door, I imagine he and his five and his four friends, they are hugging and they are dancing and they are filled with the joy of heaven. That's quite a story. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see more stories like this one in our series, Life Unlocked. Real stories of real people like us who had encounters with Jesus and whose lives would never be the same because of those encounters. People who came to him in faith for the paralytic, better, the ex-paralytic. You think his life would ever be the same? No. There were horizons of hope and potential unleashed at that moment because of his encounter with Jesus. Life would never be the same for him. So what about us? What does the story have to tell us? I think there's some, some very powerful lessons that we learn about what Jesus can do to unlock a life. The first thing on the outline this morning, let's just say this is blessing unlocked. Blessing unlocked. Christ blesses us before we even ask. Isn't that what we see in the story? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if the four friends or the paralytic had worked out exactly what they would say 
if they were able to get into the presence of Jesus, what I know is they ended up not needing to say a word. They neither asked for forgiveness or physical healing, but their friend experienced both. Jesus blessed the paralytic before he even asked. So blessing was unlocked by this encounter with Jesus. Love was unlocked as well. Love is all over this story. Love unlocked. Christ loves enough to provide what we need, not just what we want. He will provide what you need, not just what you want or what you ask for. The one thing Jesus was determined to give this man is the one thing nobody asked for in this story. Forgiveness. And he loves us too much to only give us what we want or what we think we need. The Lord knows us better, really, than we know ourselves. And He's going to operate in your life, in my life. He's going to operate at our place of greatest need. Now, what do we think we need? Well, you know, that depends. That depends on where you live. That depends on how much you make. I read this week that there are over a billion people on planet Earth, who do not have access to clean water. That's a need, man. They need clean water. And if you're one of those, what you think you need is clean water, and you're right, of course. I mean, if you're eking by an existence in a favela in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and the only water you have to consume or bathe in is foul water, then you're not thinking, you know, I can't wait for that new Tesla to come out. That's what I need. Or I hear there's a new iPhone on the horizon, can't wait for that. I also read this week in this what you think you need kind of depends on who you are. I read this week about a Hollywood producer, true story, who decided, you would recognize the name if I shared it, but there's no need. He decided a couple years back that he needed a bigger yacht. Okay? His $184 million boat wasn't long enough, so he's having a new one built 20 feet longer that will be worth about $250 million. Well, I can't personally identify with that. I doubt if any of us could personally identify with feeling that need. But it's easy, isn't it? Especially easy in the place and the time in which we live to be confused about what we want and what we really need. Easy to be confused about that. Upgrading to first class on that flight from DFW to JFK... I need that extra leg room. Car's got over 100,000 miles on it. I really need to get a new car. 
and so on, so forth. The bigger home, the nicer ride, the season tickets to the Cowboys, the, none of those are bad things necessarily, but we can lose sight of what we need, of what we really, deep down, existentially need. And at certain moments, Jesus is so moved by what he sees in us that he gives us what we need, and praise God, he goes beyond what we're asking for. Your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness, that's what I need more than anything. That's what my eternity depends on. So he didn't just give the paralytic a huge quality of life upgrade in this story for his remaining 20, 30, 40 years of existence here. He gave him an eternity in paradise with him. So blessing was unlocked. Love was unlocked. This one is interesting if you pay attention to the narratives about this story. Courage was unlocked in this story. Courage was unlocked. The forgiveness Christ offers unlocks us to live differently, to live courageously, to live boldly. When you know your greatest problem has been dealt with, your greatest need has been addressed by God... No one's taking that away. Whew. There's a certain courage that comes with that. In Matthew's account, Jesus says this to the paralytic. Matthew 9, verse 2. Let's read this one together. If you'd read this with me. Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Let's read that again. Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Take courage. The Greek word there is tharseo, which literally means be filled with courage. Be full of courage. And that's an interesting linkage, isn't it, between forgiveness and courage. When you know you're forgiven... free from condemnation, when you know your greatest issue in life has been addressed, it fuels you with a certain kind of bravery, of courage. So finally, back to the four friends. This is where we want to land the plane this morning. Even before they got to Jesus, mission, mission was unlocked in their life by Jesus. Even before they got to Jesus, he gave them purpose. Final point on the outline, mission unlocked. Because we believe, don't we, as disciples of Christ, we believe that bringing someone to Jesus can change their life now and forever. Mission. The guys believed that if they could get their paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus would take care of the rest. That was their mission, and really that is our mission. That is the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. We exist 
to bring Jesus to the world and bring the world to Jesus. That mission, we understand, is what we have been unleashed by the gospel, by the good news to do. That's our purpose. Okay? That's why we give money away to build a beachhead church building in Athens, Greece. That's why we're going out into our community constantly because this is our mission field. We're taking Christ into the mission field. So what if the greatest answer, right? The greatest answer to our issues and problems isn't money. What if it isn't found in a bottle of pills? What if it isn't in finally achieving some goal that you have set out to achieve and worked hard for? What if the greatest answer for you isn't any of those things, isn't a finding Mr. Right or Miss Right and having this relationship with somebody? What if the answer is Jesus Christ? What if that is the answer to the greatest issues you face? Well, people turn to all sorts of things and people and philosophies and political candidates to solve their problems, to make their world better. The gospel points us to Jesus. Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you put Jesus on in baptism and worn for yourself all that he conquered through his death, his burial, his resurrection? Maybe that's what you need more than anything else. Let's respond this morning as we stand together and worship.